Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. The fears of, of radicalism mixed with fears of immigration of a particular sort with a crime makes it kind of already explode, almost inherent. Please rise, court is now in session. All right, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing today? Um, I'm good, Steve. The The episode that we're doing today makes me think of, um, you know how like people will say when they're talking about an expert on something and they'll say, you know, uh, you know, so-and-so forgot, you know, has forgotten more about cooking than you ever knew or something, right. whatever. Right. Yes, I feel exactly. like I could give those people a run for their money because I feel like I forget everything that I ever know <laughs> right. yeah, exactly. <laughs> about exactly. everything. I forget it all. And the case that we're going to talk about today, as I told you before we were, when we were prepping for this episode, I am like, how did I pass us history, let alone do well, because right. I don't remember any of this. <laughs> Exactly. Um, so anyway, so I'm excited. No, I think this is just a fascinating case. And I want to go ahead and introduce our guest. Uh, we have a fantastic guest. Maybe uh, uh, tell me this, Yvonne, is this our first guest who who is not a uh, a lawyer, right? Uh, maybe. Yeah, I think, I think so. Well, we have, uh, he, he's had lots of other training at some fairly decent schools that I've heard of. Uh, but um, but no, we have a uh, professor, uh, Moshik Timken, uh, the uh, uh, professor of history and public policy at the Harvard Kennedy uh, School. Pretty good school. Um, he's a fellow at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs, uh, and uh, we are just so pleased to have Profe uh, Professor Temkin on. Professor, how are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for hosting me. Well, we are so uh, we're really looking forward to getting into uh, into this trial, which is a, a fascinating trial. Uh, before we sort of go through everything, I'll just tell everybody that we're talking about the the uh, Sacco Vanzetti trial, which was back in 1921. Uh, but you know, this is a this is a trial. Before we get into the specific facts of that, I had sort of vaguely heard of, knew it was an important trial, but didn't really know much about it. And um, and you, of course, have written a, a, a book called The Sacco Vanzetti Affair, America on Trial, which was published by Yale University uh, Press back in 2011. And um, so we, we are we are really pleased to have you on and um, and looking forward to this conversation. And I'm um, looking forward to it, too. Sorry. No, no, Professor, I just wanted to make sure um, because my palms are sweating. Can you um, just promise me there won't be a quiz or anything where you ask me what I remember about uh, history? I don't believe in quizzes as a matter of principle. And I'm terrible with names and dates. I'm the one historian right. who's like, you know, terrible at it. <laughs> he, he, he doesn't like quizzes, but he does like essays. And so we're going to do that at the end. OK, so, good. Yeah. Good. I'm much better it's at a take, it's a take home, though. Right. right. Okay. <laughs> right. I'm much it's better at uh, BSing my way through things in like the longer form. So. Uh. <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, uh, uh, Professor Timken, I want to make sure I, I, I should also tell everybody um, that if they want to look up Professor Timken, I've seen a couple of places you can go to uh, HKS. Dot harvard.edu and find Professor Timken there or the belfercenter.org. Um, I should I should also mention that in addition to um, being a, a professor of history and public policy, uh, I, I see that you're the Johnson Johnson Chair on Leadership and History at Schwartzman College at Tsinghua University. Is that is that something you still are or is that um, or is that in yes, the past? That, okay. No, that's something I've been doing 
and um, and has written uh, several other books and, and uh, is working on a book. And this one, this one kind of made me scared when I read it because I like to travel. But it, it, the name of the book coming up is Undesirables, Travel Control and Surveillance in Age of Global Politics. It, it, I don't know, for some reason, it makes me not feel great about travel. <laughs> well, there's not much travel going on now. Right. But, that's oh, true. No. It's true. Shouldn't shouldn't scare you. <laughs> um, I should also mention you got your your uh, your bachelor's at uh, Hebrew University. Then you went on and got your master's, uh, and then a master's of philosophy and PhD in history, all at Columbia University, uh, and have been at uh, the Harvard Kennedy School since 2009. So again, so great to uh, to have you on the show. Um. So let's talk a little bit about this. So I guess officially this would be called the state of Massachusetts versus Nicola Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti. Um, so I'm, I'm going to give just a sort of quick rundown of the facts of the case, but then we're going to get into a lot more detail, including sort of what led up to the, this trial and why this trial became such a an important case. And it, not only at the time that it happened, but, you know, in in. Um, up until uh, today. So um, Niccolo uh, Sacco was a, a shoe factory worker, a skilled shoe factory worker. I think he was married with at least one child. I saw somewhere that he might have had two children. Uh, he was 29 years old. Um, and Bartolomeo Vanzetti was a, uh, a fishmonger. And um, it, from from all accounts now, he getting into their politics, I mean, I guess most people would say they seemed like fairly average guys, but then I guess if you look at their politics and where they came from, maybe they're not, because at the time they were fairly involved in uh, in uh, uh, anarchist um, sort of philosophy and politics. And uh, I think the specific uh, one that they followed was um, Luigi Galliani uh, called Gallianista uh, an Anarchy. Um, and they basically believed in uh, the over overthrow of capitalism and potentially uh, the militant or violent overthrow of capitalism. So, um, you know, so they definitely had a um, a background um, that wouldn't necessarily lean. You know, you you might look at them as far as if something violent happened, that, that these guys might be involved. But um, basically what happened is that. Uh, without getting into the whole background is there had been sort of a um, there had been a robbery of a payroll on um, April 15, 1920. It was the uh, I just blanked on where it is. The brain brain. Yeah, I know. I knew it was brain tree. I was talking about the uh, I was talking about the shoe, the shoe manufacturer. Oh, the specific. Well, yeah, OK, yeah. Moral, of, it's, yeah. It's moral and, and something. I can't remember. That. I guess I should have been worried about Steve quizzing us instead yeah, of you. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's he's in the he's in the details. That's good. I am. I'm way down in them. Um, but uh, yeah. So anyway, so they they there was a robbery of the payroll where a the payroll master was murdered and his security guard were were murdered, uh, left at the scene where some shell casings, uh, as well as a cap. Um, and then uh, the, the I think there was two or three people who were seen as part of this robbery. And then they got into a getaway car, which was a, um, a Buick uh, Touring, a 1920 Buick Touring. I actually looked up a picture just so I could know what it would look like. A Buick Touring that they, that they got away in. And um, long story short is, is after some investigation, 
the um, there, there was basically sort of a sting set up where they found the Buick Touring. And then uh, they told the owner of the mechanic shop that if anybody came to to claim that, to let the police know. Uh, so some uh, folks named, uh, uh, we'll talk about more about them later, but uh, Mario uh, Buda, uh, as well as two other people showed up to claim the vehicle. The, uh, the mechanics or the, the shop owner's wife let the police know. And uh, then when the police showed up, everybody sort of scattered. And then uh, both uh, Nicola uh, Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti were on a streetcar and were arrested by a police officer as they were leaving the scene or leaving that area. And they both had um, firearms on them, had, didn't have great explanations for why they had the firearms on them. And that became an important part in the trial. Uh, and then it, and so they both get arrested uh, and charged with the murders and the robbery. Um, the uh, trial happened from May 31, 1921 until about June. I think it was July 14, 1921. Um, and basically, there was a lot of controversy over how the trial was done. The judge had made some comments. Judge Thayer had made some comments about how he felt about anarchists and about how he felt about um, these two particular Italian immigrants. Um, and then there was lots made about their political leanings. Then there was all kinds of the, the bulk of the case rested on uh, eyewitness testimony. There was all kinds of flaws, and we'll get into some of that specifically uh, uh, flaws with the eyewitness testimony. Um, and, it, and that would come out over the years. Um, and then there was, um, a, I remember they had the cap that they had found at the scene. And, and what reminded me of the OJ Simpson trial is where they had Sacco on the stand and he, he was supposed to put on the cap and the cap didn't fit. And unfortunately, Johnny Cochran wasn't there. And, uh, you know, long story short is it didn't work for him, but the cap didn't fit. Um, and, uh, and, and there's they, they they also had somebody come in and testify. This had to be one of the first sort of ballistics experts, I, I have to imagine. But they had a expert come in and testify that the bullets at the scene were consistent with uh, the bullets that would have come out of Sacco's uh, uh, gun. Um, and so after a, a long trial, the. Um, they were convicted uh, fairly quickly, and then Judge Thayer sentenced them to death. Um, at the time, there were some there there were some uh, uh, protests or some um, uh, movements coming out of this, but it, but it didn't really become like a, a big sort of cause celeb until later on, um, and uh, eventually. Uh, uh, I think in 1925, somebody had another prisoner had said that he was the one who actually did this. And then um, and then uh, that's sort of when it became got a lot of uh, momentum behind it. Um, unfortunately, that didn't work. And uh, they were executed uh, on April 23rd, 1927, uh, after there had been a whole bunch of motions for new trial, all of which had been denied, a whole bunch of uh, motions to go up to the Supreme Court of Massachusetts, uh, which had also been denied, and then a um, uh, plea to the governor, and he did not stop the execution either. And so they, they were executed. And so uh, I know I sort of uh, was all over the place there uh, and probably not the best uh, recap of the trial. But um, I think, Professor, is that did I get that basically right on what, what happened in the trial? 
Yeah, that reminded me of the of the trial that that I that I that I wrote about. No, okay. I'm, I'm, it was actually no, it was, right. <laughs> it was actually a good one. No, that was good. Uh, you 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 passed, uh, Steve. No, so right. I, let me let me just uh, fill in a couple of things that, uh, regarding what you what you said, which is actually really, I think, really informative and helpful. So, um, one thing that we need to keep in mind about these two guys, Nicola Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti, is that they are Italian immigrants, right? So they they arrive uh, both of them in the same year to the United States, nineteen oh eight. Uh, uh, to the state of Massachusetts, uh, and uh, this is a period of, of immigration, especially from that part of the you know, southern Europe, eastern Europe. People coming with, with without much, right, and working, um, and they don't know they don't know each other that well. Actually, you know, they're not like you know buddies or anything. They're they are. Uh, Sacco, as you said, was a you know professional heel trimmer in a factory. Vanzetti, uh, he had a family, you know, uh, Sacco, he had a, a wife, he had a child, and then a second child when he was actually arrested, his wife was pregnant, their second child, a daughter, um, uh, and Vanzetti, who was, um, you know, a bachelor, as they used to say, uh, worked outdoors, he didn't like to work in factories, he liked to talk to people, so he sold fish eels for a living and that actually is important because that was his alibi later for one of the you know one of the things he was accused of that he was selling eels in Plymouth Massachusetts at the time um, and when they came to the U.S. they got uh, radicalized so they were working class uh, immigrants uh, didn't speak much English uh, this is a period of great tumult uh, and a sense that you know capitalism is a very oppressive system uh, and that there's going to be a worldwide revolution. The question is, what kind of revolution? Is it going to be a communist revolution, anarchist revolution? These guys are anarchists. Basically, they believe that, you know, centralized government is bad and oppressive inherently. They don't like hierarchies. They don't like authority. Uh, they don't like the state and they don't like capitalism. And uh, there are different kinds of anarchists and there are anarchists who are like philosophers and they write books and stuff. And there are anarchists who actually try to carry out acts of, of violence to overthrow. Uh, Sacco Vanzetti belonged to that latter wing of anarchism. They used to call it direct action. So these guys, uh, anarchists at that period, were uh, carrying out attacks on people. They execute, you know, they're the ones who shot President McKinley, right? Uh, it was a, it was a, a Czech uh, mm -hmm. anarchist who, who, sh who shot him in 1901. They, they uh, had previously uh, assassinated the president of France, Di Carnot. They assassinated the heiress to the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So these guys were very serious about committing it. They also liked to attack captains of industry, all kinds of famous people who worked as in, you know, what we would call the private sector. Um, and Sacco and Vanzetti believed in that. They believed that we need to take action in order to uh, carry out this revolution. Uh, so that's their background. And then in the United States at the time, after World War I, I think Professor Larson, the previous podcast, also talked about this. There was a sense of, uh, you know, wave of hostility to immigration and radicals. And that's when we have the so-called Red Scare, the first Red Scare, when people are, first of all, prevented from coming into the country, but also they're deported if they're suspected of being radicals, if they come from particular parts of the world. Um, and that's what's happening by way of background at the time that this uh, case is unfolding, okay? Right. Now the crime is really interesting. So uh, you described it perfectly. It's uh, you know these the, the uh, uh, a factory paymaster and his guard are walking down the street with the payroll in the in a lockbox, and in broad daylight they're suddenly accosted, shot, killed, 
and two guys run off with the payroll and jump into a getaway car, the Buick that you mentioned, and speed away. And that's an act of banditry, right? I mean, that that's and that it's so you know, you've recognized oh, that looks like a movie, right? From that, mm-hmm. from that period, but that was very common. It was a, there was a crime wave happening, not just in Massachusetts, but in many parts of the country. So it was in a way a very almost a, a, a I would call it a generic or a typical act of banditry. Now, part of what later becomes an issue is that Sacco and Vanzetti themselves are not, you know, kind of um, the typical criminals of the day. They're not they don't have a criminal record. Uh, they're not known to move in any circles of professional criminals. Uh, in the trial itself, later on, there was no evidence that they had recovered the money. In fact, the money was never found or recovered. Uh, there's almost no physical evidence connecting Vanzetti to the to the crime. Um, and the, with Zasako, there was that cap, that famous cap that didn't right. fit. There was some debate about the ballistics. I'm not going to get into that. Uh, I'm not an expert on ballistics, but it has, to sum it up, it has been very controversial on both sides. Okay, we don't have a definitive a definitive view on that. So um, that trial happens in 1920-1921, a period of extreme hostility generally in the public towards Italians, uh, towards anarchists and other radicals, with a, a sense of here in the trial, you know, they're on a trial for a crime of banditry, but the politics comes up. Right. So the first thing that we could talk about is Judge Thayer. Judge Thayer, uh, you know, this Yankee judge is um, uh, making these patriotic exhortations to the, you know, to the jury and to anybody willing to listen, you know, about America and about patriotism and so on. Um, he doesn't hide his opinions about these guys, about anarchism. Uh, he lobbies to be their judge. Okay, He had already been the judge for the previous case in which Vanzetti was convicted for an attempted robbery and attempted murder, where he also denied uh, any involvement. So he right. shows up at this joint trial with a prior conviction. That's very convenient for the prosecution. Right. And J- Judge Thayer gave him the maximum, 12 to 15 years on that. So he's already a, a convicted criminal. Okay. Now, uh, a lot of people are saying these two guys shouldn't get on the stand because, first of all, nobody's going to like them. They barely speak any English. Okay? And then what they're going to say is not going to please. It's going to be about revolution and about the working class and Italians and so on. Their lawyer, uh, Fred Moore, one, he's one of their lawyers. Now, he's a guy who was very well known for his uh, some successes in previous trials of making the cases these kind of uh, you know famous cases in which there was a, a demonstration of of the the uh, uh, defendants being railroaded and sort of you know tried for their politics rather than for what they did. But here it completely backfired. Right? He gets uh, he gets uh, them on the stand, and Sacco makes this you know, uh, a speech, rambling speech about anarchy and about revolution has nothing to do with the case, nothing to do with the act of the crime that he's been. But that's what the jury is listening to. Right. Okay? And the judge is just sitting there, you know, listening to him hang himself. OK, now, why am I talking about this? Because these are the things that are going to be talked about then incessantly for six years okay? yeah. from that moment. 
until the time they're executed, you know, jumping ahead six, six years later. Everything I just talked to that happened in the trial then gets magnified, right? And people are starting to pay attention. Hey, what was this judge doing? What was actually happening? What were the what was the jury listening to? How did the lawyers perform? What did the prosecutor the prosecutor oh the prosecutor tricked him into making this speech about anarchy and the the lawyer, the defense attorney was more interested in Sacco kind of making this into a spectacle rather than trying to try the 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 you know the case. So uh that's why from the beginning, the crime, which is an act of banditry, not political, gets tied up with the political context and the history that's happening. And then that's also why people start looking at this as, wait a minute, what we have here is not just a, a problematic legal case. We have a political scandal on our hands. Right? right. So I think that's what I kind of just fill in what you were talking about. So, Yvonne, the Internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic, and it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world, but if nobody knows about them, then they're not going to come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like Digital Law Marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the Internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization, it's really important that your firm's site is is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website. And you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. So one thing, you know, and just from a trial standpoint, we can talk about trial strategy here uh, as far as, you know, putting they put both of the defendants on the stand and both of them made you know pretty political speeches about um, their beliefs in anarchy. Um, you know, from what I read about Fred Moore was that, you know, this probably wouldn't have been a very well-known case, but for Fred Moore and his sort of dis- defense strategy and making sure he got it in front of the public. And then, of of course, we'll talk about this more as we go on. But I guess there was some question about uh, Fred Moore's ethics and maybe what he did during the trial and and maybe uh, what happened. And I think there's maybe some revelations down the road, which we'll hold off for a little bit. Um, Um, Steve, I'm sorry, but I don't mean to interrupt you. But so I just want to make sure it's clear, especially for our listeners. So at the time that, you know, leading up to the actual trial and during the trial itself, um, my understanding is there's there's not as there's mainly local attention on it and the sort of 
bigger scope of attention comes after. Right. That's right. The um, but I, I did want to make sure that it was clear. So so as we talk about the, these were uh, these were two anarchists who who actually believed in in militant anarchy and at, leading up to the trial. And part of the reason why there was this scare and this fear about anarchy is that there had been um, sort of uncovered in 1919, this sort of massive bomb scare or bomb plot where there was a lot of threats to various uh, public figures um to uh, to bomb them by anarchists, um, or at least that was what was what what was being reported. So I, I'm I'm sure that fed into, you know, as far as you know what how they were viewed, and then and then we should also mention that that when they were when they were part of the the uh, you know anarchists, uh, they both um, Sacco and Vanzetti left the country to go to Mexico in order to avoid the draft. Uh, for World War One, and that got brought up uh, a lot during the trial. Is that right, Professor? Yeah. So they during World War One they ran away to Monterrey, Mexico, in the summer. If you you know Monterrey, Mexico is a very hot place in the summer. Right. Uh, if you've know, been down to Texas, then you sort of know what it feels like. So <laughs> yeah. uh, that's where they were. They they were resident aliens, so it wasn't it wasn't about being sent. It was about being registered for the draft. You know, get registered. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that came up. Again, um, as a sort of thing which was completely irrelevant to the, you know, what happened in Braintree in 1920, uh, but it's, this is after World War I, this is a time of, you know, a lot of um, anti-immigration sentiment mixed up with this kind of, you know, heightened patriotism, Mm. so their past is brought up in this sense too, right, As, as, as these being dubious dubious character. So, and the other thing is the, a lot of the uh, case against Sacco and had to do with what the, what the prosecutor called consciousness of guilt, which was that they were behaving in a guilty way. And okay. a lot of lawyers actually were like, what does that mean? Right. Behaving in a, what do you, so they're like, they couldn't give an, you know, proper, they were like behaving when they were arrested well, yeah, you know, you're arrested by the police. You've got, uh, you know, firearms. You're you just learned that yesterday your your best friend, you know, fell out of a 23 story window. OK, and you're trying you actually think you might have to escape the country. Yeah, you might be a little nervous. Okay, so this was this was like a conscious. So they can't say we don't have strong physical evidence, but these guys are just so darn suspicious. Right now, it sounds it sounds like I'm being making a caricature, but that's really what it came down to. I mean, when you when it when you when you, at the end of the day, right? Because there were the the physical evidence, although it was discussed, and it wasn't was never very strong, right? So, uh, and then they actually Sacco and Vanzetti. This is also a big part of the story, right? Because you always look at not just trial lawyers, but you look at the defendants, right? Or you look at the people who are uh, actually on trial. They were uh, from the beginning, and especially as the case moved up they were making a strong impression on people, okay? Their declarations of innocence, many people, you know, for you can believe it or not, but many people found it very convincing. And when the case started becoming very interesting and having a major impact, it's when people who would not necessarily be sympathetic to these two guys, because they're not anarchists and they, they don't like anarchists, they're conservative or they're liberal, but they're mainstream people, especially in Boston, you know, these Brahmins or, uh, you know, these high society people look at these guys and they say, there is no way that these guys who are protesting their innocence actually committed the, cr- the, the crime of which they're accused. 
um, then it started to become, you know, so uh, a, a big deal. And so Sacco and Vanzetti themselves played a role, a big role, in how their case was perceived, right? Because from the beginning, people thought there is a big mismatch here between the crime that they're actually put on for, right? This robbery and murder that is an act of banditry. It looks like a professional job. There's a getaway car. I was actually telling somebody, somebody asked me, you know, do you, do you, do you think they, they did it? And I, I would say, you know, this was, you know, if somebody told me, hey, we're going to go commit a robbery and, uh, you know, take guns and we're going to, you know, then it's going to be a getaway car. It feels like you kind of have to learn the ropes. You have to be part of a gang. You have to come up. You have to learn how to, you have to know how to do it. Uh, it's not like something you just improvise, seems to me. I'm just, you know, just my guess. Um, in this case, it was like they they just didn't fit that profile at all. Right. On the other hand, if you told people these guys are suspected of uh, trying to assassinate the president or some captain, you know, Andrew Carnegie or some captain of industry, they would say, oh, no, that actually makes a lot of sense. That that's the sort of thing that they would do. It's not that they're above being violent. It's just really a, a, a factory paymaster and his guard uh, st stealing money, jumping in a getaway car. Never, and nobody ever finds the money again. That seemed to a lot of people to be a complete, especially when they got to know them. It just seemed like it didn't make any sense at all. Right. And like, so what, I mean, is the driver, you know, behind it? Cause sometimes you read about criminal cases and some, some of the pressure is coming from um, a high profile crime or a crime that scares people. And so somebody needs to go down for it. And so, you know, right. you know, you're going to sort of shove whoever you think is into it and try to get a conviction versus just, you know, once they learn more about these guys and who they're associated with and what their, what their ideology is, then they just, they became that these characters that, that at least to certain people just needed to go down or, or did they just wanted to take them down out of, you know, out of fear yeah. or for whatever, for, of what they represented. So honestly, a lot of people did think that at the time. So for example, Felix Frankfurter, who was later Supreme court justice. Mm -hmm. And at the time was a fairly, you know, he's always a, a fairly conservative, uh, you know, lawyer, uh, uh, you know, lawyer or professor of law. He wasn't, radical or anything like that. He he wrote a book uh, actually in 1927, which he argued that this was basically a kind of a, um, a conspiracy having to do with the, the uh, uh, kind of exploiting this case in order at the time in 1921 to bring down people who were uh, part of radical networks. The mm -hmm. Sakon was that he got caught up in this dragnet. Okay. Um, and because this other stuff came up, oh, you guys are distributing violent literature. You, you guys are part of, you know, this uh, movement that, that we don't like and is scary. And actually, you know, to be honest, as you point out, Steve, they, they did, you know, anarchists. We don't know about Sakon Manzetti. There's no proof about that. But we know that the group that they belong to or the movement that they belong to uh, committed acts of violence. Right. They bombed buildings. There was a Wall Street bombing in 1920, which many people argued was, in fact, vengeance for them being on trial. That's never been proven, but that was a that was a that was an argument that was made at, made at the time. So, uh, Yvonne, just to answer to fin finish answering your question, yeah, there was a sense that from the beginning, uh, it was like killing two birds with one stone. You 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 have this crime in brain tree, the crime of banditry. It's a robbery and a murder. Um, it's not it wasn't extraordinary as it were, because, as I said, 
there was a lot of crime of that nature happening in that era. Okay. Uh, but you have that crime, but then you pick up two guys who are also un, very unlikable for political reasons, and then you just make a mishmash of it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the so the argument, those who were criticizing the legal process, and especially the prosecutor, uh, Fred Katzman, were saying, you know, what this guy is doing is he's just like uh, not even bothering to separate in the minds of the jury Right. What the what these guys represent politically from the crime. Right. And so for me, part of the story is how this obscure crime committed by two people who nobody knows who they were in Braintree, Massachusetts. Right. Why would something happening in Braintree, Massachusetts interest people down in Georgia or wherever, let alone, you know, in Casablanca, Morocco or China or what have you, because that's what happened. Right. Right. Uh, It had to become very politicized. And so that was what I think that's really the process that that, uh, you know, that made it such gave it such magnitude. But through to the end, all the way to the execution, there was a legal process going on. Right. Mm -hmm. So you have those two things happening at the same time. That to me is what was kind of fascinating about it. Yeah. You know, one of the things I read is that Braintree, which is now uh, sort of part of the greater Boston area at the time, was basically a separate community. And they said they only had a police force of three people at the time that this happened. Um, so I thought I thought that was interesting. Um, it, probably three very busy people. Right. right exactly. Like, <laughs> well, and, 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 you right. know, the, the thing about the robberies happening there in Boston, it makes me think of the movie uh, The Town with Ben Affleck. Do you remember yeah. uh, in that movie, he talks about how there's an industry of people who rob, you know, basically banks or rob, you know, and it's, and it's yeah. a Boston thing. Like people come up and that's just what they do for a living <laughs> and, uh, and how he, and how it gets tied to these two, two guys who, uh, you know, are, are involved in some political things that aren't so popular, mm-hmm. but, uh, but it, it doesn't sound like robberies are, um, all that unusual in the Boston area. But, um, I, I did want to mention one thing, professor, in one of my, one of the sources that I read, and it's maybe not a, a reliable source, it said that that Buddha, their uh, their friend Mario Buddha, was the one who actually detonated that bomb on Wall Street that killed thirty nine people. Is that factually accurate, or we we don't we don't know for sure? Okay, that he is, you know, my actually my friend and colleague uh, Beverly Gage at Yale University, who wrote a you know wrote a book about the Wall Street bombing. Um, argues that that he's the most likely culprit. Okay. But there's never been even the the state, even the the federal government and the state of New York never actually uh had a had a trial. Like they never convicted anybody for the crime. So we think it has to do with Buddha, but we don't we can't say that for sure. I'm just being careful because I know that yeah, you know, you don't want to make any like, you know, I don't want to get in trouble with, you know, this is like there's all these lawyers listening in. I don't want to get right, in trouble. That's right. I'm just saying, I'm just saying that's what that's I'm the messenger. Okay. Right. So right. um, but but look, I mean, here's another thing. Look, Judge Thayer. Judge Thayer um was the um sorry about that. He was uh the the person who was also listening to appeals of his own conduct, about right. his own conduct. So the, right. the case it went to him seven times, yeah. and lo and behold, he found that his uh, behavior uh, uh, on the bench was uh, beyond reproach, no problem at all. <laughs> right, right. Even right. though he's like at us at his gym telling people, "Did you see what I did to those?" So I'm not going to use any bad words, but yeah. you know, did, I, did you see what I did to those guys the other day? Uh, he's like being bragging about 
you know, punishing these anarchists. And he's constantly talking about anarchists. And he's the judge. He knows that they're not being put on trial for being anarchists. Right. They're being put on trial for a robbery and a murder of a paymaster and his guard. That's right. it. No anarchy. So he's talking about that. And through and through, he's the one, of course, who sentences them to death. Right. So it's it's very convenient also for the supporters of Sacco and Vanzetti to have this kind of villainous figure. Right. Representing the injustice. Mm-hmm. Right. As it were, because, again, I don't I'm not saying that we know definitively that it was, you know, they're guilty or innocent. But in terms of the trial, the trial was very problematic. Okay? Right. And so, uh, you know, Thayer is there. Then when it goes to the Supreme Court of Massachusetts, people outside of Massachusetts are horrified to discover that in Massachusetts, the Supreme Supreme Court, as it were, of Massachusetts can only comment on whether the judge, you know, correctly conducted the case from a technical standpoint. That's it. And they say, no, actually, you know, it went like the process was fine, so we can't overturn it. Um, I I read that they found that the judge was personally biased, but that he didn't uh, show any of that bias in the courtroom. This is the Uh, Lowell Commission, which was set up by the governor to uh, uh, to kind of advise him on what to do, because there's at the end, there's a lot of there's a lot of pressure on him. Uh, He's because he's the end of the legal process. Right. Right. He's the only one who can actually commute the sentence. He can decide to. Uh, you know, just commute the death sentence to life imprisonment or or even make it so that it gets decided another day, another time, um, or you can pardon, right? That's what the governor in, in principle can do. Now, in addition to this, there, you mentioned it, there was a confession. There's this other guy, a, a professional criminal, Celestino Madero, Medeiros, he's in prison. He says, uh, well, they, they didn't, I don't know these guys, they didn't participate, I did it with my gang. What? So like and then the judge is saying, no, I, I don't I don't believe him. Uh, you know, we, he's not reliable. Why is he not reliable? Because he's a prof- professional criminal. Right. Oh, OK. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, OK. So the one guy who's like, say he can say I confess I did it. Oh, you're not reliable because you're actually someone who is a confessed criminal. Great. Yeah. So that was people found that very odd. Okay. And he looked and, a lot and, like uh, like one of them. Right. Did, he looked a lot like Sacco or. There was there was. Yeah, he looked a lot. Well, and especially, you know, I hate to say it, but there's these sort of, um, you know, there's an ethnic thing going on, too. Okay. Where, right. Uh, where in in that, you know, the, the jury is all uh, how should I put it? Wasps. OK, so okay. and and uh, Southern all, all male, too, the, I think they're all male. They're all, yeah. you know, you know, waspy and they're all these Southern European immigrants basically kind of look the same to them. OK, okay? so they're like gotcha. one of them. Is saying Sako. Oh, that I recognize Sako. Like picking somebody out of a lineup. Where do you see? Where do you see Sako? Oh, I saw him from a distance of like seventy-five feet for one second, driving in a car, like getting okay. in the getaway car. Oh, yeah, that's for sure that guy. And then it turns out, as you said, that he actually looks a lot like, you know, this other guy who's part of the gang of of someone who's giving a confession. Yeah. Okay. So, I think that also, you know, looked very odd to people. You know, was almost like right. there's a determination to just see through all the way to the execution, right? And that's right. when a lot of the protest gets kind of angry because this just seems impervious to, you know, this arguing of, wait a minute, we're talking about reasonable doubt. Uh, it seems like the doubt's a little more than reasonable now. Mm-hmm. seems like that there's like a mountain of doubt. Right. Yeah. You have somebody else who's confessing to the crime. You don't even have, you don't have phys- strong physical evidence. You, have, you, you don't know where the money is. Okay, you can't even prove that it's their guns. And by the way, why are they on trial together? 
what are they like one person? Right. Who both of them shot at the same time? It was like one person is shot. Why are why are they in, like together as, as if they're like a unit? People said that's odd. That's not how it's supposed to work. Like somebody shoots a gun, that person is different from the person who doesn't shoot the gun. Ivan, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed. Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me. Yes, yes. A lot more working from the computer. Yes. And only getting dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services. That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference online, it's more important now than ever. I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them. And uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services. Yeah. And I mean, LTS, I'm going to, I'm going to call them LTS because we're on a first name basis. (laughs) You know, my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot. Their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well, whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in-person trials one day, or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you. You can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there, but they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life videos. They do settlement documentaries. They do demonstratives and everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they, I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at ltsatlanta.com. How much did it come up in, in um, to the extent that, and I, and I know you, you focused on some other things and maybe, so maybe this wasn't part of what you looked into, but um, when I worked for the 11th Circuit, I did a lot of um, post-conviction appeals, habeas corpus and stuff like that. And so I I have more familiar familiarity now with sort of how often that happens and what the standards are, but sort of, you know, back then you certainly look at all this stuff that comes out, all the, all the motions after um, their convictions and, and, these affidavits you're getting and and witnesses who are saying they were pressured into saying things. But in that, at that time, did you, did you look into it all? Like how common it would be to get a new 
trial or get a conviction reversed? Like, was there a lot of precedent for it back then? So there, uh, that's a really good question. And the answer is that that the Sacco Vanzetti case was unprecedented in how long, today it seems, let me put it this way, today it seems kind of ordinary that mm-hmm. uh, a case can, especially a, a, a death um uh, a death penalty, like a, a, cap, a capital case, right? right. Mm-hmm. A death yeah. penalty case is going to go on for mm-hmm. forever, right? And it's actually even today, like critics of the death penalty, especially abroad, they find this just horrifying. The idea of somebody sitting on death row for years and years. Um, right. So at that time, this was six years, okay, that they were sentenced to death, and then they were, you know, the process was playing out. Uh, at that time, that was considered to be very, very long. Gotcha. Uh, and it's because of the, you know, the uh, the appeals that kept coming in and their insistence on their own innocence and the fact that there were uh, increasingly uh, people and organizations who were willing to put up money and support to stand behind these guys. So right. um, I think in that sense, it starts out, uh, uh, if, and tell me, Ivan, if I'm answering your question, it starts out with as a, as a case that doesn't seem or uh, that extraordinary to people. In fact, there was a reporter in, who sends a dispatch to his editor in New York, and he has, he uses a slur to talk about right. Italians, but he basically says there's no there's no news story here. I'm not even going to file anything. It's just two Italians, you know, who are up for murder. Nothing right. nothing un- unusual. When it starts to get uh, extraordinary, is when wait a minute, these guys are really insistent that they didn't do it, and they've got people lined up behind them who aren't just like their friends and and people who are like in the anarchist movement. They've got like now they've got especially after 1924 when they fire Fred Moore. They have now a team of very well-established Brahmin, you know, Harvard Law lawyers um, who uh, are pretty high up in Massachusetts society and sometimes just in, you know, American light, right, letters and, and politics. And they're like vouching for them. Right. You know, they're 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 representing them a lot. You know, they're doing it pro bono and they're not, you know, and they they manage to get a lot of people on board. And. Part of it is also, I think that uh, they are, they're, they're actually, uh, it's almost like they're embarrassed. They're, they, you know, they're represent, they're part of the system. Okay? They're part of the legal system. They're part of the Massachusetts legal world. Uh, and they look at, they study this trial and they say, this judge Thayer is a travesty. He shouldn't be represent. He shouldn't be on the bench at all. And he certainly shouldn't be the face of Massachusetts, you know, uh, law. Uh, uh, or, you know, the court and there's, he's not, he's not what we should be. We should be something else. We should be about, uh, you know, uh, proper conduct in courtroom. We should be about justice or we should at least be about fairness. Uh, we should have something which isn't embarrassing in the, in the face of the whole world. Right. And so that's why I think a lot of these people, it's a genuine concern for Sacco and Ranzetti. And I think a lot of them really kind of, you like Sacco and or believe that they're innocent, but it's also, I think, kind of saving face. It's also about saying, wait a minute, we have to actually protect the integrity of the of the legal system here, because what happened in that courtroom in 1921 is a, is a, is, a, is completely grotesque, right? Okay? And that's not us, right? Uh, we're we're Massachusetts, right? We should <laughs> we're not right. So, and it's a very different in Massachusetts back then. That's a whole other thing. It's very different from Massachusetts today in many ways. In some ways, it's not, but in many ways, it is. 
there is a long uh, history of Massachusetts lawyers taking up the uh, the difficult side of a case and, and winning it. I mean, look back at John Adams, you know, and in, uh, in uh, defending the British soldiers. Um, so true. it goes back a long way. And I'm sure that's a proud history for Massachusetts. But um, I was just going to mention some of the people who came out in uh, support of the uh, of, of Sacco and Benzetti were uh, you already mentioned uh, who Felix Frankfurter, who became a justice on the Supreme Court, Roscoe Pound, who was the dean of the Harvard Law School, H.L. Um, Mencken, who we remember from the Scopes Monkey Trial, H.G. Wells, Albert Einstein, uh, Henry Ford, Edna St. Vincent Millay. Uh, and then I see also here Benito Mussolini and Joseph Stalin. So maybe maybe they weren't so you know <laughs> that, that helpful. But uh, but no, they had a lot of people who who spoke out uh, in in. in and came to sort of their defense uh, and, and made this such a, a well-known, a well-known case. Absolutely. Um, no, I actually, I'm not going to say anything, Steve. I know, I know you've got a, I know you've got a trajectory. So. No, no. I, well, I, I did want to make sure that we hit because it, it was important to me. We talked about the number uh, of motions for new trial and some of the things that were brought out in the motions for new trial, I think, if you know, criminal defense lawyers would listen to and be like, you can't be serious. But like the four the four person, the foreman brought in uh, 38 caliber bullets to the jury room during deliberation so he could show everybody what they look like. Uh, and, he, and then when somebody allegedly when somebody said uh, they're you know, what about them being innocent? He said, well, they ought to hang anyways. This is the foreman. Um, at least three, of, I think three of the eyewitnesses recanted their statements. Um, and then one of the eyewitnesses, which was apparently the star eyewitness, um, her um, identification of Sacco was in a one on one meetup or show, you know, instead of a lineup where you're looking at a number of people. So it's just basically like bringing uh, Sacco there and be like, is this the guy? And she says, yes. And then, and then another person was a pretty well-known felon who um, had had his, uh, his uh, sentence knocked down in exchange for his testimony uh, about this. So there, there were a number of issues with this trial. And then of course, as you mentioned already, uh, professor, those all went to judge Thayer and judge Thayer, uh, didn't find any any problem with any of those um, any of those things that that happened. Yeah, I think I think the idea when here I'm speculating a little bit, okay, but I think the idea was for a lot of people on that side was when you just said that the foreman said he actually captured it nicely. It was like even if they didn't do the robbery and murder and brain treat, they're still they're still criminals and right. they need to be punished. That and that I mean. That's not right. That's not what's supposed to happen. Right. Right. You're, you're bringing people to you're not like saying, OK, you know, you're, you're trying them for anything. You're trying them for a particular crime. If they commit that crime, that means they're innocent of the crime. Right. right. Uh, so people. So I'm not even talking about like the political response. I'm talking about the legal debates. You know, when legal experts weighed in. They were like, what are we what are they actually on trial for? It seems like they're on trial for being anarchists, for being Italians. And for, you know, for being um, for going to Mexico, uh, yeah, all this other <laughs> yeah. stuff, not being yeah. patriotic. Uh, and, and and of course, Sacco and Manzetti were saying that all the time, too. And then their lawyers were saying that. So their lawyers who weren't, again, uh, not the early lawyers of Fred Moore's and those of but the later lawyers were actually more important because they're the ones who actually managed to push this case into the mainstream where. You know, I make a distinction between an early on 
it's a local case. And to the extent that it becomes well known, it's well known among, you know, there's radicals and there's there's uh, people that, you know, Fred Moore can actually talk to. And, and of course, there are uh, there are violent responses and there are some, you know, there's pride protests and demonstration actually abroad uh, in places like South America and Europe and so on. But it's not what I would call a nationally or internationally famous case yet. Okay? It starts getting really nationally and internationally famous, you know, closer to the actual date of the execution. So around 1986, 1927. By that time, Fred Moore is gone and all these other types of, you know, this kind of representation is gone. You have these types of uh, different kinds of lawyers that you mentioned who are in charge of the, uh, of the, of the, of the defense. Um, you have a defense committee that rallies kind of very respectable mainstream public opinion. So now it's on the front page of the New York Times or, and by the way, all over the country. So I was actually looking up in my book. I said, well, can I find all these different states? And there's like, it's everywhere. For example, the Macon Telegraph, which I understand, which as I understand mm -hmm. is still there, right. uh, yeah. was one of the, you know, they would write about this case every week. And it was like, what is this grotesque thing that is happening in Massachusetts? That's a rotten business over there. You know, they're, they're, they're uh, um, harassing radicals, immigrants, has nothing to do with the case at hand. We ought to all go up there and like, you know, uh, show them that this is not America, right? This is not what America is about. So, and that kind of reaction happened every, everywhere. So Massachusetts itself comes under this kind of scrutiny. Um, now Massachusetts has its own kind of um, interesting history, you know, in, the, in that period, it's actually considered to be in decline. It's considered to be a very kind of provincial backwater place, very different from what it had been before when it was like, that's where, you know, the main figures in American literature come from, your Emerson, you know, Thoreau, Longfellow, you know, these are all Massachusetts people. And by the 1920s, it's considered to be a, a very xenophobic, uh, fearful, conservative place that we bought, where they ban books in Boston, where they don't like Emerson. And of course, Sacco and Vanzetti become a symbol of this. So there's a lot of national scrutiny now of what's happening in Massachusetts. And then even outside the country, a lot of it is focused on this kind of the peculiarities of Massachusetts law, including some of the things that, 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 that we talked about. And some of those laws were changed, by the way, as a result of the case. For example, uh, the, you know, that appeals going to the same judge or the fact that the Supreme Court couldn't, uh, couldn't review anything beyond the technicalities of the case. Those things changed. And then they get rid of the death penalty also in 1959, um, which is a direct result of the Sacco Vanzetti case, right? The, they electrocuted people there. Uh, right. That was the, the electric chair. So um, so I think that that's also part of what makes this story, you know, pretty, you know, it, was, it had this kind of dramatic effect for people. Yeah, it's also interesting because I feel like, it, you know, a lot of the cases, like especially now, that get um, at least national attention, it's usually it's a high profile criminal case during the right. criminal trial itself, you know, and this almost kind of reminds me a little bit of, um, of like the, the serial, um, podcast case, you know, Adnan, um, Saeed and in mm -hmm. that a yeah. lot of the attention, um, came during post-conviction stuff, you know, after, you know, that was when people got more in the loop rather than, um, you know, and, and concerned about the problems about, um, that prosecution or his defense or, you know, his appeals. Um, 
you know, so I think it is kind of a callback for, for, I mean, for all of us who weren't alive when, when this trial happened, right. um, but it sounds familiar in that way, but pretty unusual in that usually yeah. if, if America, Americans are all locked into a case, it's while the case is you know, right. being tried. So don't forget that they actually were back in the courtroom every time. And some of those right. famous speeches that they're making, they both, Sacco and Vanzetti, each make like a famous, a couple of times actually on different occasions. One is when they're, uh, when their final appeal is rejected, is denied. Right. They actually, before that, they make statements. And then on pronunciation of the execution, they're supposed to ask the defendant if they have anything to say. Right. And on both of these occasions, they, each of them, Sacco and Vanzetti, uh, restate their innocence and, you know, in powerful terms and make these speeches about uh, about themselves, about uh, their families, about um, why they think they're on trial, you know, mm-hmm. why the judge is persecuting them. Mm-hmm. The judge is sitting there listening. I don't think I don't think he cared that much. He, he right. gonna, you know, he have them killed anyway. Uh, but that those the fact that it was these were dramatic, yeah. were dramatic courtroom scenes. It's not the original trial. But it is where, you know, the spectacle is happening. And right. of course, it's a very different era, right? So there's no TV and there's no internet and all this stuff. But on the other hand, people are much less distracted. So there's like, if something is happening that is very central, then there's a lot of attention. I guess you saw it a little bit, let's say, with the O.J. Simpson trial. It's a very different yeah. kind of trial. But, uh, it, you know, it's the sort of thing where if you are... Um, Compare it today, like you're a columnist for a newspaper or you're a pundit on television or even you're a foreign leader. Okay, this case became so important, especially in the summer of uh, 1927, which is then when they're about to be executed, that everybody has to say something about it. You have to comment on it because that's what people are talking about, arguing about. If you want to be if you want to be relevant. Yeah. Then you have to comment on it. Not to mention you've got riots and demonstrations. You've got American officials who can't go out, uh, diplomats whose homes are being bombed, um, and foreign leaders telling American leaders, look, guys, you, you, I understand that you have this legal process to go through, but we now have to, um, you know, our police force has to take care of this because of something that's happening in your right. country. You know, what is this story? What is going on here? Right. Are these guys innocent? Like, why? Why is it such a it's turning into something for, you know, the British prime minister had, to, you know, was like talking basically to president at the time was President Coolidge trying to figure out, you know, this becomes a diplomatic incident. Same thing for the you know other other world leaders, because it's such a global, such a global affair. So for me, when I like, I think when I started doing the research, I wanted to figure that out. I wanted to understand how a trial that seems so ordinary at first, right? This case is sort of like a banditry becomes at some point probably the most famous, significant, uh, not just legal case in the world, but story, right? There's like three months there, I think, until the execution and even after uh, in the summer of 1927, when this is the number one issue in not just Massachusetts, in the United States as a whole, in every state, the, the, you know, the media will be covering, the press will be covering this, which is crazy. And then in the, in the world. Yeah. Okay. So I thought it's, that's pretty significant. If that happens, it means that the, the law, the trial is intersecting 
and yeah. interacting with a lot of really powerful historical forces. Okay, so as you point out, I'm not. I am not. To my shame, I am not a lawyer. I wish I was. <laughs> but I am, so I can't. I couldn't represent anyone. Like, <laughs> God help anyone that I had to represent. It would be a disaster, guys. Just a disaster. Okay? You'd have to have a whole episode just about that disaster. Okay. That being said, I am a historian, so my responsibility is to try to understand that part. Right. To, yeah. To, in my my amateurish way of understanding. A legal case, right, uh, would be then kind of translate into my more, I guess, professional way of trying to understand the historical forces that make it, you know, the reason that we're talking about it now at this moment is not just because it is interesting from a legal standpoint and as a criminal case, it's interesting, it's, 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 you know, and, and controversial. But the reason that we're even, that we even know about it and that I wrote a book about it is because it became so politically significant nationally and internationally. Right. You, so one of the things I wanted to uh, hear you talk about was that. So as you mentioned, there were when the uh, pronouncement of the uh, you know that they were going to execute him came down, and then when the execution happened, there were literally riots and protests all over the world, um, yeah. and um, and that there was lots of outcry to the U.S. government, to the president, to the governor of Massachusetts to stop this. And you sort of make the point in your book that um, that that's part of the reason why the U.S. said we, we need to go ahead and execute these guys, because basically because we, we were sort of a newfound power or this we, we were we were sort of experiencing our new power after World War, World War One. We had become uh, a, a nation who basically a lot of other nations owed a lot to. And and um, and we had we had new power and it was kind of like, well, we're not going to let anybody else anybody else tell us how to do our business. And so it, it almost like because of that, then they're like, well, we can't back down now. Is that am I saying that right? Yeah. Yeah, I think you are. So part of the dynamic that uh, I'll try to explain what I mean by the part of the dynamic is like we can't give in to foreign pressure because that sets a dangerous precedent right. or any kind of pressure on the legal. And you probably are, know of this, like what happens when um, a judge or uh, any uh, any case comes under this kind of public pressure from the outside? Well, then there's going to be arguments back and forth to what extent did that influence mm -hmm. the jury, to what extent did public opinion kind of seep in and, and, and prejudice people and so on. So here you have it, you know, big time, right, uh, where from the beginning, right. right, the argument is this is a political trial, even if the case is, itself is not the, the, the crime is not political the case becomes political and then all the ramification, the context is political and then the impact that it has is political, et cetera. Now, once it becomes this diplomatic or kind of global affair, which I call it, right, from case to affair, and it's this, as you said, a, like a cause celebre, then you have to make a big, you have, if you're, say, um, the, forget the judge, but if you're the governor, okay, and you've got this is Governor Fuller, by the way, who is an interesting character. He was the, he was like a a man who came up, uh, uh, you know, owning a, a bicycle business, which he then turned into an automobile business. And he's a businessman who goes into politics, you know, tried and true American story, um, becomes the governor of Massachusetts, following up Alvin Fuller, becomes president, right? And this man, Alvin Fuller, has political ambitions. He thinks, you know, he could become president, too, someday uh, as a, the Republican candidate. And so 
you know, he has to make a political calculation about what's the right thing to do here because he comes under a lot of pressure. And there's people telling him, people that are pretty high up in the Massachusetts legal world and the political world telling him, look, um, we're under a lot of pressure here and this really looks bad. This, this trial, this was not a good trial, okay? Um, but you can sort of redeem the state and the system by just, um, you know, uh, 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 commuting the sentence or calling for a new trial or doing something, stepping in, right, as the highest authority um, and not only do the right thing because there's like a, maybe a travesty of justice here, but also rescue the integrity of the legal system and the state. Look, and you look like a hero. That's great. Then there's other people telling him, you can't back down from foreign entry. You can't let people from outside of Massachusetts dictate to Massachusetts what to do. The Supreme Court of Massachusetts had its say, right? Um, you're going to humiliate people who like were the responsible people in this in this trial, and you're going to it's like can't give it, can't let the terrorists win. Plus, you've got violence, so there's bombings and there's demonstrations, and that dynamic can be dangerous because then people feel like if there's like a demonstration, there's bombing and there's violence, and then you just like back down. Well, then the terrorists have won. Now you set a dangerous precedent. Somebody doesn't like a verdict. And then you start like violence and then the legal system is going to cave. Right. So uh, he uh, he's under a lot of pressure. So what he does is he says he defers. He's forming a commission headed by the president of Harvard University, Lawrence Lowell. And this commission is a whole story in and of itself. When it's formed, you know, he says, look, I've I've pointed these three men to um, examine the, the, you know, the case for me and make a recommendation. And um, I'm still gonna make my own decision, but I wanna hear what they have to say. And when that commission is formed, people like Felix Frankfurt, others are very hopeful because now you've taken the case out of the hands of this guy, Thayer, this judge who people are think is, he's kind of a joke. And you put it in the hands of the president of Harvard University. Serious man was one, a pioneer of the political science discipline from the Lowell family of Massachusetts, very important family, right? The city of Lowell is named after him. Mm -hmm. So uh, there was a lot of hope among these elites that they were going to tell the governor, basically, look, this is this is, you know, you have to you have to commute the sentence or, or you know, do something about this. Uh, but they actually put out a, a report that uh, kind of just like. Uh, green lights the you know the process and says well you know we we didn't find anything terribly egregious uh, and they make their recommendation to the governor and now the governor has his kind of pretext for you know saying okay well now I've heard from them and I'm going to go go ahead with the go ahead with the execution mm -hmm. um, now the 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 irony of this is that. Fuller was hoping, I think, and he even said it, he gave an interview in the 1930s where he was asked like, what happened there. And he actually said something incredible. He said, um, these people, Sakun Vanzetti, were involved with all kinds of radical causes, right, who were threatening our country, right? And so you can see that even he's not reasoning according to criminal, the criminal case at hand. He's reasoning according to this irrelevant political background. Mm -hmm. Okay. And he, by the way, never became president. His political career ended. <laughs> and uh, and that's because 
the Republican Party didn't want the Sacco Vanzetti case to become an issue at all, ever in a presidential election or in political in their kind of political uh, stakes. Yeah. Okay? And then and the, the, the craziest thing is, I think that even if he had commuted the sentence, his career would still be over. Right. <laughs> because that was also it was a lose lose yeah. situation. Right. right? Sometimes right. you you find yourself. So there's like a for me, it's like a sort of an, you know, this is, uh, you know, this. I don't know what to call it, but it's almost like a political tragedy here of, of, of one man who was like faced with no good choice. Hey, everyone. We had so much good stuff to talk about with Professor Temkin that we are doing uh, this episode in two parts. So stay tuned next week for part two of the episode about the Sacco and Vanzetti affair. <laughs>